You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Good morning. Good to see all of you here. What a great crowd this morning. It just seems kind of like week after week, a, a few more folks are filtering their way back in. Before we begin this morning, I want to give you an update on what's going on with the Fearless series. A lot is happening. Um, two weeks ago, I was in Portland, Oregon. Uh, this week, I'm flying to Colorado Springs, Colorado. The next week, Corpus Christi, and then shortly after that, Reno, Nevada. So there are a lot of opportunities that are opening up for me to go and speak to crowds of people and exhibit the Fearless series. And every time I do, uh, there's tremendous excitement, and I hear the same thing over and over James, there's nothing like this out there, and uh, that's why I did it, because I had no interest in recreating the wheel, and if someone else had done it. Uh, also, I'd ask you to pray. Right now, one of the largest and most prestigious churches in the United States of America, the senior pastor's wife, has the Fearless series in her possession, and she is reviewing it. And the reason that's important is because if that church were to take the Fearless on, series on, it would give credibility to churches all over the nation about the Fearless series who don't know me and don't know anything about it. So I'm just praying that God will open that door, and uh, he seems to uh, have been opening doors at his own timing and not my timing, and I'm ahead of the Lord most of the time. And then when I look back, I go, oh, I'm so glad it didn't happen when I wanted it to mm, and in the way that I wanted it to. That's just kind of the way it works. Amen. So thank you for your prayer. Our church is going through our third series, a fearless series right now with women. But also something really exciting has happened. We have a group of about 15 to 20 men that are going through the fearless series, and they are having a revival. The men are getting educated, understanding experiencing conviction about the need uh, to encourage and be an advocate for women in our culture and in our church. And so, men, if you have not done that, the next time that we offer it, I hope that you will do it. Uh, the guys are having an incredible time, uh, according to what Brian Duncan, and we can't always believe Brian, but, you know. <clears throat> he is uh, from Oklahoma. He is from Oklahoma. But he's been south of the Red River for enough years now that, that maybe a You know what? I came up with a new nickname for him on Saturday. What's it, that? And it was in the fly. It was in the moment. You know, those are always the best ideas. The Pottawatomie Powerhouse. That's what we call him. <laughs> he is a, a descendant of the Pottawatomie tribe yeah. of Indians yeah. uh, in Oklahoma who, after the Trail of Tears, came down and settled in Oklahoma. His aunt, I believe, is the president of the tribe, uh, of the Pottawatomie tribe. Is that... Do what? The vice chief. She's the vice chief. Okay. All right. Whoa. Well, that's even bigger than president, I think. Uh, but anyway, he always said president, but that means vice chief, right? Okay. Well, see, your dad, you can't be trusted in the words that he used. Okay. So. Case in point. <laughs> Case in point. All right. This morning, we're going to finish the series. Hey, real fast. I just got a message that said, men, you do not have to wait to join the Fearless Series. You can actually join it right now still. Yeah. Wednesday night at 645. Yeah. Guys, you want to come? What room are they meeting in? Over okay. Over, over in the gym building? The gym yes. building. 
Yeah, and they're, they're, starting, they're doing the third one this week, so you have third, fourth, and fifth, and we can get you copies of the first and second that you missed. So if you'd like to guys just show up Wednesday night to meet with the guys and do that, then we would invite you to do so. I think that you would be, uh, um, I think you'd be blessed by I doing agree. that. I agree. Radical worship. Psalm 122, verse 1 says, I was glad when they said, let us go into the house of the Lord. Now, that is an Old Testament expression that refers to the tabernacle and then the temple. They refer to that as the house of the Lord. And both the tabernacle and the temple in Jerusalem represented God's presence dwelling in the midst of his people. But as we come into the new covenant, that changes because Jesus tells us that God no longer dwells in a house made with hands, but he now dwells in houses that are not made with hands. He dwells within us who are Christ followers. So now we are the temple where the Holy Spirit dwells. So therefore, we no longer go to the house of the Lord. We are the house of the Lord, right? We don't just, we don't go to the house of the Lord. We shouldn't even refer to this as the house of the Lord. This is a meeting place as all this is for we individually are the houses of the Lord. So as we gather to worship, he is always here because if he, you are a Christ follower, he dwells within you and you bring him with you everywhere you go. And I want to say, we've been saying this for a long time, this is a safe place. It's a safe place not just to tell your secrets, as our vision or now our mission statement says, but this is a safe place, folks. Do you realize that 20% of fatal accidents happen in cars? 20%. Every time you get in a car, you've got a one in five chance, it seems, of if you're ever going to have a fatal accident, that it will happen in your car. 17% of them happen at home. Home's not really all that safe. 16% of fatal accidents happen in public transportation. 14% fatal accidents happen to people that are walking, pedestrians, but only .001 fatal accidents happen at church. <clears throat> We're winning. That's what he's saying. We're winning. This is the safest place you can be. So I am glad that you are here this morning. We hope that you feel that you are safe here, for you are. Now, we're going to finish today what we've been talking about. Now, you're not... You're not safe from being offended, okay? We, no, we no, will no, likely, no, 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 We will likely offend you for sure. You're safe from some fatal accident. It rarely happens. Let's clarify. Around. Let's clarify. That's right. <laughs> so we've been talking about radical faith, and that is really about discipleship. And so we've been talking about what does it mean to be a disciple? Well, to be a disciple means to be radical because Jesus was radical. First week we talked about, well, what is a radical disciple look like? What does he do? Well, a radical disciple follows a radical teacher who is Jesus. Then we talked about radical ambassadors, how we go out into this world as his representatives. And then last week, while I was in, where was I? I was in, oh, I was in Colorado last week in trout fishing. Trout fishing. What a trip. What a trip. Okay, excuse me. I, I, I get you, off you the back. Beat, I went went, got yeah. off the beaten path. That's good. Radical witnesses carrying the good news. That's what Derek talked to you about last week. This morning, we're going to finish the series out with radical worship. And our text, there are two of them. And if you would like to refer to them, one is in the Old Testament, the other one is in the New Testament. The first is Isaiah chapter 6. Both of these texts are about worship. And Isaiah 6 is about Isaiah's encounter with the Lord in the temple in, in, in worship. He went to the temple to seek the Lord, 
and in the old covenant, the Lord's presence was in the temple, and he saw him. In John chapter 4, is about Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. And he ended up speaking to this woman about true and genuine worship. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to ask three questions, and hopefully from these texts, answer them about worship. First of all, what is worship? Second of all, why do we worship? And third, how do we worship? So let's talk about for a moment what the Scripture says about what worship is. It's interesting, if you ask 100 people, you would probably get about 100 different definitions of what worship is, and and many of them would be simply wrong. Uh, They don't come from Scripture. They come from a cultural understanding or just your own idea or whatever, and the really only thing matters is what Scripture says about what worship is. So today, let me clear some things up about what worship is. And this is, these are general principle kinds of things that can guide our worship together, but also your individual worship as an individual Christ father, follower as you worship the Lord. First of all, worship is an expectation. Mm. Worship is an expectation in really two directions, quite frankly. It is an expectation, first of all, from God. He has expectations from us. And then worship is also an expectation from our perspective. Now, in John chapter 4 that I referenced a moment ago, as Jesus encounters this woman at the well, the disciples were shocked that Jesus even bothered to engage her in conversation. And there are several reasons for that. First of all, she was a woman. He was a rabbi. That was not culturally, that was just not acceptable to engage a woman you did not know, was not your wife, was not a family member in conversation. But Jesus broke that boundary and went to her. Second of all, she was a Samaritan, which the Jews hated the Samaritans because the Samaritans were really half Jews. They were a result of of, uh, Assyrians intermarrying with Jews centuries before, and they rejected Samaritans. The third was she was, on top of all of that, she was an outcast by her own people because she was living an immoral lifestyle. And I love the way that Jesus interacted with women. Do you realize Jesus was a liberator of women? Many people don't understand that. Jesus was a liberator of women. The way that Jesus approached women, the way that Jesus engaged women, he raised women up. And as we, as Christ followers, should be raising women up. That's just an aside there. But Jesus engaged her in conversation to the total shock of his Jewish disciples. And in this conversation, Jesus eventually got around to what really mattered, what he really wanted to talk to her about, and that was about worship. And in verse 23, he says to her, an hour is coming, and actually now is, he says. It's here. When true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Now, understand those last few phrases. He says, the Father seeks these kind of people to be his worshipers. That means the creator of heaven and earth, folks, is not only inviting us into worship, he is seeking us to worship him. He expects us to worship him. He is searching for people who will worship him in truth and spirit. In a moment, we'll talk a little bit more about what that means. Now, this, this is ultimately it, folks. We were created to worship. 
He created us. He created all things to be a reflection of his glory. And so he is seeking his creation to bow before him in worship. So he expects it. But, but here's another part of it. And Isaiah 6 reveals this. That we can legitimately come to worship with an expectation as well. It's Isaiah 6. When Isaiah went into the temple to worship he went because he was distressed. Now, I'm sure that he went on regular times to the temple to worship, but this particular time when Isaiah went into the, into the temple to worship, the scripture informs us that it was a special occasion because King Uzziah had died. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train was, uh, filled the temple. He went into the temple because he was distressed over the death of this godly king, Uzziah, who had reigned for four decades. And as the king went of the Old Testament people, so the people went. And people had walked with the Lord during those four decades. And if a king came after Uzziah that was not a godly king, it was going to be devastating for the people. So Isaiah, as a prophet of God to the people, went into the temple in his desperation and in his distress seeking the Lord. Now, I, I submit to you that when Isaiah went to the temple, he expected God to show up. He went with an expectation. God expected Isaiah to come to him in his distress. And so Isaiah went, and he went with a legitimate ex expectation that the Lord of heaven and earth was going to show up and was going to meet with him there. And in this text, we get an incredible description of what Isaiah saw in this kind of vision format. But the point is, I want you to understand that Isaiah showed up and God showed up. God expected Isaiah to come, and Isaiah expected God to reveal himself in the place of worship. Now, folks, when we talk about worship, we oftentimes get off the track here and refer only to corporate worship. Yes, corporate worship is important. It's, it's, we're instructed in Scripture to gather together as the body. But this, if this is the only time that you experience any time of worship during the week, you're missing out on it because we are individually to go to the Father in worship. So let me ask you a question first. Do you take time during the week to show up? Okay? I don't mean show up here. I mean show up in the place of private worship. And if you do, do you show up expecting God to meet you there. You see, really, how many of us in corporate worship, think about this, or in our private worship, come really expecting an encounter with God? How many of us really come? Or maybe we get in our car, we drive, or my, or, or on our Harley, as I did this morning. That's why I'm wearing the hat. You, you know, you can't fix your hair with your helmet on. How many of us get on our four wheels or two wheels coming to church really expecting to meet God? Well, that's why most of us don't. Because we don't expect to. He expects us to come, and he desires us, I believe, to expect him to show up. And the reason that many of us don't really ever meet with the Father is because we go through a ritual and we don't really come with an expectation that we are going to have an individual encounter with the creator of heaven and earth, 
that meets us right at our point of need. But worship is an expectation. Second, worship is exaltation. It's interesting. We get a few things from the English, you know, a few things, a few good things. Not all that many good things, but some of our, some of our uh, words are from Old Ang- English, and the Old English word for worship is worthship. Okay, worthship. We've just kind of anglicized it. It means to describe honor, respect, and magnificence. A king was always referred to as your worthship, someone who is worthy of honor. So in Isaiah 6, he says, I saw the Lord... And he was sitting on this throne, and he was lofty, and he was exalted. Now, a worship, a king, his throne was always higher than everyone else. It was an indication that here is the person who is at the top of the food chain, above everything else. Now, get this. Worship is exaltation, but our worship does not exalt God. Hang on to that. We saw, we exalt you, we exalt you. I know what we mean when we sing that, but that's really not good theology. We can't exalt God. He is exalted. When Isaiah went in, he saw the Lord already high and lifted up. Now, we exalt him in our hearts, but our worship does not affect the, the, the creator of heaven and earth. He is exalted whether we worship him or not. Psalm 97 verse 9 says, For you, Lord, are high above the earth. You already are. You are exalted above all gods. So when Isaiah bowed in the, in the temple as he saw the Lord high and lifted up, he bowed in recognition of God's exalted position. He saw the Lord. He saw the Lord above him. He bowed down. And so when we worship, worship is a recognition of his exalted status. We do not exalt him in our worship. He is exalted. We simply in worship come and recognize his, who, who he is exalted above all things. Now, in our hearts, we exalt him. Look at this. Exaltation of the Lord is a vital part of the transformation process. Now, we are to be being transformed, right? We are to be being conformed into the image of, Je- of Jesus. And worship, folks, true worship is a part of, is an intricate part of the transformation process. You say, well, why is that, James? Because we become like what we worship. Mm. And that is true in all of life. We become like what we worship. If you worship money, you will become materialistic. If you worship pleasure, you will become a hedonist. If you worship self, you will become a humanist. You just go right on down the line. Whatever we worship transforms us into its image. And so worship of the true and living God is intricate into this transformation and this conforming process into his image. And we often wonder, well, why is my life not more like the life of Christ? And sometimes you can look right at your worship time and your worship experience because you're not really worshiping him. You're worshiping other things. And you're more like them than you are the image of Jesus. So worship is exaltation. But thirdly, worship is an expression. It's an expression of our submission. And the reason you become like what you worship is because you submit yourself to it. 
If you, worship, if you worship material things, you submit yourself to those things and they conform you into their image. If you worship pleasure, you submit yourself to seeking any kind of pleasure you can possibly get and it conforms you into its image. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, the Scripture says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. Now get this. All things are lawful, but I will not be mastered by anything. Thing. Now, this is a very, the context of this passage is very deep. I don't have time to go all the way into it, but let me tell you what Paul is doing. He is countering an attitude within the Corinthian church that they had adopted from their culture, which anytime the cultural ideology comes into our faith, it always causes chaos. We are to infect the culture. Our culture is not to infect us. But that's what was happening in the church in Corinth. And their thinking was this. Since we are saved by grace, since all Christians are forgiven by grace from the eternal penalty of our sin, well, then we can do anything. And I've heard Christians, you know, make that argument. Well, you know, since I'm saved by grace, then anything, I, everything is okay for me because I have been forgiven of the eternal penalty. Now, that was a takeoff of the Corinthian culture. Because Corinth was known for its hedonism and its depravity. And many of these people had been saved out of that into Christ. And they brought with them some of that mindset and mentality of their hedonistic culture. It began to bleed into the church. And quite frankly, folks, it still does today. So it began to distort their view of what grace really was. Understand something about grace that is very, very important. Grace does not set us free to. Now, you just fill in the blank. Grace does not set us free to anything. Grace sets us free from. And any time a Christ follower begins to think, well, I'm under grace, so I'm free to, you've just stepped into error. Grace never sets us free to something. Grace always sets us free from something. Grace is not about a license to do what we want because we have the forgiveness of God. Grace is about liberty from the penalty of sin that has been freely given to us. So Christian, anytime you start thinking, I don't care who it bothers, I'm free to do this, you have just distorted the meaning of grace. Amen. So Paul says, it may be lawful, I may be forgiven, but it's not profitable for me. It may be lawful, but then he says, but I will let nothing get me in its power. Hmm. I will be mastered by only one, and that is the Lord Jesus himself. You see, worship as we submit to him is a reminder that we are to submit ourselves to the master of Jesus Christ and him alone. And anything else that we might say, well, you know, that might be lawful for me. But Paul says, but it's not profitable. And if it can get you in its power, then you ought to run the other direction. Grace does not set us free to. Grace sets us free from. So worship is an expectation, exaltation, and expression. But let's tell us about why we worship. Why do we worship? This is perhaps the most important question. Uh, worship has been done a thousand ways historically. When you look at the church, you can identify all kinds of practices. And, and it, it honestly, when you, when you look at just the practices of the church at large, worship is perhaps the most diverse practice in all of Christianity. 
in terms of the many expressions we find throughout different cultures and in different times. When, when you think of worship, depending on your age and your upbringing, there are maybe one of two possibilities that you are thinking of. Either you are thinking of hymnals and weekly communion and formal attire, or you are thinking of a contemporary setting with a praise band similar to what we have here. And in either of those, there may or may not also have been a choir. <laughs> right? That's about it. I mean, that is, in, in terms of the evangelical modern church, those are really the, the two big expressions of worship. But historically, there have been tons of approaches. One of my favorite examples of this comes from the uh, German Baroque age composer, Johann Sebastian Bach. Bach is, uh, in the musical realm, considered uh, one of, if not the greatest composer of all time. Just an absolutely brilliant individual. And what most people don't understand is that Bach composed a large part of his music for mass, for worship in the church during his time. And, and what's fascinating is when you look at his original documents, his original compositions, he signs them not with JSB, Johann Sebastian Bach, but with SDG, which stands for Soli Deo Gloria which is one of the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, uh, which was spurred off by another German by the name of Martin Luther. We've talked about the, the Protestant Reformation here uh, pretty at length, actually, in a series we did last year. And so it, it's interesting to me that Bach recognized the value of orienting his music towards the glory of God. But here's the fascinating you better part. better translate that Latin. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. <laughs> okay, there yes. you go. To God alone be the glory. Well, that means me. I forget we don't all speak Latin. I, That's right. right. That's true. Um, so, so the interesting thing about it, though, is that if you were going to church during Bach's era, your job in the worship service was to do this. This is it. To observe. This was worship. Internal prayer, thought, but that was it. The music, beautiful, profound, skilled instrumentalist, no words. No choir, no nothing. Church music was simply an expression of worship to God by the people in the ability to, to use the instruments that were put in charge to do that. The, the congregation just sat there and took it in and thought in their inward self about the glory and the beauty and the grace of God. I wonder how big a crowd we'd have today if we did that. You know, that's a good question. Good question. I don't know. You know, there's less singing, so maybe the people who are scared of COVID would come. <laughs> maybe so. Yeah, I don't know. Who knows? We wouldn't have had to have masks ever. Unbelievable. Um, here's what's interesting, though, is that, that that is only one of, I mean, several dozen examples of how worship is fleshed out. And so the question of why we worship is very, very important because if we're not careful, we can become too enamored with one way of doing worship and then what happens is we become overly judgmental or legalistic when those things change. <laughs> but if we know why we worship, if we understand the reason why worship exists, we can funnel any of those practices through those reasons. And if those reasons are kept intact, worship can be as diverse as we want it to be. And I believe that's what God wants. I believe that's what God desires is a diverse approach to worship. It's not about methodology, in other words. It's about motive. So why do we worship? Let me give you a few reasons. Number one... Because God demands it. God demands it. If you go all the way back to Exodus chapter 20, to the so-called Ten Commandments, the top ten, if you will, if you're a college football fan, the Big Ten, uh, the original Big Ten, 
You read the first commandment, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. If you go to the second commandment, the one right after that, he essentially says, I'm going to condense it down, you shall have no idols. You shall bow down to no idols. Now, what do both the first and the second commandments have in common? They have to do with worship. They have to do with worship. God is saying, you will not worship, you will not bow down, you will not serve anyone or anything but me. It's not a suggestion, it's not advice, it's a commandment of God. Now, commandments, if we can just be honest for a minute, commandments, this sounds a little harsh, like you are commanded to worship God. But understand that, this may may shake you up a little bit, but but I want you to follow this. Commandments are where love is expressed. Did you know that? We think of commandments as burdensome. Commandments are actually where love for God is expressed. It sounds strange, but in that passage in Exodus 20, where God is unfolding the Ten Commandments, verses 5 and 6, he says, For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. But then check this out. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. How does God know that we love him? by the way we keep his commandments, by obedience. Jesus echoes this as well. John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. One of the actually, I think, greatest arguments for the divinity and the deity of Christ is that Christ can give Mm -hmm. commandments. That's something that only God can give. And Christ is saying, you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Not the Father's commandments, my commandments, the ones that I'm giving you. So one of the commands that God gives us is to worship. He demands worship from us. Now, again, let's just be honest here. We can do this, hopefully. It's church. We're a safe place from both real threats and, and otherwise. You're, you're most likely to leave here alive. Exactly. Most likely. You have a high percentage. Um, can we agree that the word demand is overall a negative word? It feels negative, especially when talking about something as intimate as worship it doesn't seem like something that we should be demanding. It kind of mm. steals from the special nature of worship. Worship is an intimate, kind of emotive expression, and so to demand it kind of just feels forced a little bit. And I believe that we have a negative connotation towards a word like demand <clears throat> because of a misunderstanding of the character and the nature of God. We hear things like God demands worship, and if we're not careful, What can happen is we can funnel that terminology through our own human experiences and through our understanding of what it means to make demands from someone and then project that onto God as well. That's wrong. Kind of like, who does he think he is? Who does he think he is? Exactly. It's, It's not the same thing, and here's why. God has a different nature than us, right? God is is at his very core good. God is just, he is perfect, he is morally righteous. No one else on this earth except for Jesus himself can be described this way. We all have a different nature. We are fallen. We are sinful. We are morally corrupt, not morally righteous. We are unjust. It doesn't mean that that you don't see people do things from time to time that appear good or appear nice. It means that at our core, our nature is bad. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I love if you do a really uh, in-depth word study in the Greek on that word all, you know what it means? All. (laughs) It's really amazing. Very descriptive. Just like wow means wow, forward or backward. Yeah, yeah. Our natures are not alike. Now, this is important, and here's why. Follow me here for a minute. The demands that we make are shaped by our nature. Hmm. 
The demands that we make are shaped by our nature. When humans make demands, because it is shaped by my human nature, usually it is self-serving to some extent. If I make a demand of you, the, the, the idea that is implied is that that demand will benefit me in some way. That's kind of the purpose of the demand. For example, I have three little girls at home. I knew this was coming. <laughs> if I make demands that you will clean your room before you go outside, who does that demand benefit? Me and mommy, because we don't have to clean the room now, right? There's some kind of self-serving objective within human demands. Demands carry a negative connotation because it implies a self-serving objective. So when I say God demands worship, it feels self-serving to some extent. And it's not because remember, demands are shaped by nature and God has a different nature than us. Here's mm -hmm. how you can think about this. Our demands are self-serving. God's demands are self-giving. Our demands are self-serving. God's demands are self-giving. Now, what do I mean by that? When God demands that we worship, he his demand requires him to give himself to us. James just talked about that a moment ago. There's an expectation involved with worship that we can expect as worshipers for God to meet us in this time of worship. Why? Because God will give himself through his Holy Spirit as we come to worship him. Mm. We, can, we can expect that. We know without a shadow of a doubt. Why? Because his demand for worship is self-giving he gives himself, in other words, in that time of worship. God understands that we are created uniquely in his image and therefore dependent upon him and that worship is actually the best thing for us. It's actually the best thing for us. For him to demand it, he, re he realizes, is a positive for us. You can think of it this way. We need to worship God. God does not need us to worship him. That's right. It's, it, that is a unilateral concept. It is not bilateral. I think Acts 17 talks about this very well. Uh, it doesn't use the word worship, but it, but it gets at the idea of what we're talking about here. Acts 17, verse 24 and 25, Paul is talking to the men of Athens, and he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands. Check this out. As though he needed anything, <laughs> since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is the sole source of life and everything. He doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need our worship. We need everything from him. So get this, people of God. When he demands worship, there's a self-giving aspect to this demand because the payoff in worship is for us, not him. Amen. Now, here's what this means. It means that God's demand is actually an act of love. In other words, it would be less loving and less benevolent if God did not demand our worship. God loves us. He understands what's best for us, what's most fulfilling for us, what's most impactful and purposeful for us. So he demands worship because it's satisfying to us, and that produces, in turn, more authentic worship. I think uh, John Piper, a uh, really well-known preacher, pastor at this point, retired now, but the uh, founder of Desiring God Ministries, pastor in, in Bethlehem Baptist in Minneapolis for, for many, many years, uh, I think he said this best. He had a, a term that, that he coined <clears throat> years ago that he called Christian hedonism. <laughs> and I really like this term a lot, and I think it, it, again, strikes at the heart of what we're talking about here. Christian hedonism says that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. In other words, God receives the most amount of glory, the most authentic, intimate worship when we find 
the most satisfaction in him. So let me ask you, are you satisfied? Are you satisfied in worship? You should be. You were designed to be. You were designed to worship. You were designed to find satisfaction in worship. There should be an element of filling up that you feel when you come to worship the Lord. I think there's this idea out there that worship is too emotionally driven, that it's this kind of this big emotional experience that everybody is looking for. And I agree with that sentiment to some extent. I do think that worship can often be relegated to this sort of emotional moment or this emotional experience, and it is so much more than that. But let me say on the counter that the answer to that problem is not to strip emotion away either. Mm -hmm. There's this whole ideology out there in the Christian church, primarily in Reformed communities, which is where we are kind of located, that worship should be less emotional, that there should be no emotional drive whatsoever. Worship is emotive. It it claws into the innermost part of our being. So there's a very delicate balance here. We want to maintain theological integrity of worship, but we also want to recognize that that God demands our worship for our good, and because of that, it strikes an emotional chord within us. Hmm. I have this conviction that I think that every person here that is a Christ follower will wrestle with this on either one side or the other. Some of you will major on the theological commitments of worship, and you will struggle to open up your intimate parts of you to the Lord in that time of worship. You will struggle to come to worship with the expectation that the God of the universe is going to meet you there with being awestruck by his goodness. The other half of you will have no problem opening yourself up emotionally, but you will also open yourself up to theological error. Mm -hmm. And so there's this, both aspects of this matter. We we have to find that fine balance between what has God demanded, how has he demanded it, but also are we giving ourselves in this time of worship as well? We're meant to. God has designed us that way. So come back to the big question here for a moment. Why do we worship? For one, it's because he demands it. He recognizes it's for our good, and he demands it of us. Secondly, I'll do this one quickly, and then you can wrap it up, is he deserves it. First Chronicles 16, 29 says, Ascribe to Yahweh the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord and the splendor of his holiness. Worship is due to him. We owe him worship. Mm. He is deserving of it. You know, one of the ways that we talk about worship is that worship is a response. You've heard that before. It's a response, right? And that is true in a sense, but I want to clarify something that I think sometimes gets very confused in Christian circles. Worship is a response. The question is, what is it a response to? Most people would answer that question, it's a response to what God has done for me, (laughs) right? God has saved me. He's forgiven me. Those are the reasons why I worship, in response to what he's done on my behalf, and that is wrong. That is wrong. We can and we should have gratitude and worship for what God has done for us, but that is not the reason why God deserves worship. When we worship him, we're not responding to what God has done. We're responding to who God is. Mm-hmm. You see, the cross, Jesus, uh, salvation, forgiveness, all of those things are amazing things. They're not why he is worthy of our praise. That is not what earns him or or makes him deserving of worship. Let me give you an example of why this is true. Revelation chapter 4. This is after the cross, after the resurrection. Jesus is in the throne room. The angels, the seraphim are there. The 24 elders are there. They're worshiping God in his splendor, the lamb in his splendor. And and this is what they say, Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you conquered the grave. (laughs) No, 
For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The simple fact that we exist is enough of a reason for God to deserve our worship. Now, is it wrong to come to worship with thanksgiving? No, absolutely not. As Christians, we should absolutely be doing that. But it's not what makes God worthy of worship. Understand that even if God does not send Jesus to the cross, he would be worthy of your worship. The cross is an undeserved, unearned gift. It restores fellowship with God. It saves us from hell and death. God was never obligated to do that. He didn't have to send Jesus. That he does is an expression of his love and his grace. But he's worthy regardless. He deserves our worship because of who he is, not what he has done. Hopefully this will shape the way you think about worship. These are important concepts. This is important stuff for us to understand. We understand what worship is. It's an expectation. God expects us. We expect God. It is an exaltation. He is exalted whether we choose to to recognize it or not, and it is an expression. And we understand why we worship. He demands it because it's what's best for us, and he deserves it because of who he is. Last, James is going to take us home with how do we worship? Well, I, I, I think that we need to have a band. <laughs> I agree. And, and I think if you don't have a band, you're not worshiping. Ah. Oh, well, I think the Church of Christ just rolled have, over yeah, in right. their grave. You have to have a choir. On the other side, you have to have a choir. If you don't have a choir, how can you worship without a choir? Right. I mean. I agree, man. Okay. Choirs. Let's get to the heart of it then, and I'll do it very quickly. Jesus revealed it to a Samaritan woman who was a reject of her own society in John 4, 23, when he said, The hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Mm. There it is. That's how we worship. That's, that's all the Scripture says about how we worship. It doesn't say anything about methodology. It doesn't say anything about style. It doesn't say anything about choirs or praise bands or anything like that. It simply says we are to worship him in spirit. And that's the worship that the Father receives. Nothing about style. I've been all over the world, all over the world, and I've watched God's people worship in cultural styles that freaked me out initially. (laughs) But then I realized, but these people are opening their hearts before the creator of heaven and earth. That's worship. Amen. It's not the way we do it. But it's worship, and it's true, and it's spirit-led. So worship is not about a place. It's not about a posture. It's not about pomp and circumstance. It's not about performance. Worship is about the inner self opening ourselves up in the human spirit. We're opening ourselves up to the Holy Spirit. And whatever way that happens is honoring to God. Second of all, it says not only in spirit, but in truth. Mm. And basically that means integrity. That's right. You know, I, I, think that, I think that a lot of times we don't experience the presence of the living God because we're not really coming to worship with integrity. Because there is this mindset that, some, that worship has to be happy. <laughs> I mean, if, if you look at a lot of the celebrity, cultural type places where worship is going on. It's all, you know, Jesus is winning the battle and God, let's take that mountain for Jesus. And, and is that really all of life? Is that, 
I mean, for the people that are here, if, we, if, we, if, we, if, that, if that's all we did, and if that's how you came to worship, would that genuinely be a truthful reflection of what's going on in your life right now? No. Because, you see, we should worship in the condition in which we are. That's integrity. That's not putting on a mask and a happy face because you come to worship, so you're supposed to be happy when you're desperate. If you are desperate, you need to come to worship in desperation. If you are in despair over loss or pain or hurt, then come to worship in despair. Let it out. The person next to you may be coming in celebration and you come in despair. And both of them are in truth if that's where you are. Mm. You know, I, I would love to see Across the congregation on Sunday morning, and sometimes I do see it, one person lifting their arms in praise and adoration for great victory that God has given that week, and the next person sitting down with their head in their hands in tears. That's worship in truth. That's coming where you are. It's bringing what you have and and what you're walking through at that moment. And that's what Isaiah did. When Isaiah went to the temple in Isaiah 6, He didn't go celebrating. He wasn't happy. Everything wasn't peachy keen. He was desperate. Lord, what are you going to do? This godly king is gone. Father, are you in charge here? What are you going to do? He went crawling into the presence of God. Mm. And the Lord gave him a message. How did he see the Lord? He saw him high and lifted up. Isaiah, I've got this. Isaiah, I've got this. And his train filled the temple And the seraphim were flying around, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And the smoke filled the temple. And man, what an expression of the sovereignty of God. Isaiah, rest your heart. I've got this. Hmm. I'm the sovereign king of heaven and earth. You get it? You get it, folks? This is worship. This is true worship. And if this really is a safe place, then you ought to be able to worship in wherever you are. And if you're struggling, then worship in your struggle. If you're celebrating, worship in your celebrating. If you're in despair, then worship in your despair. And expect the Heavenly Father to meet you there. Whether it's in corporate worship or whether it's in your private worship. This is worship. We're all about help, hope, and healing. That's the new vision statement. I find it very rare that people come looking for help, hope, and healing with a smiling face. Just being honest. Pretty rare, isn't it? Yeah. It, pretty rare. I'm looking for help, hope, and healing. Boy! Yeah. Let's do it. I love this old French proverb. A good meal ought to begin with hunger. Ooh. Praise the Lord. Good worship begins with hunger. That's good. Do you hunger for the Lord? Wherever you are, in whatever state, do you mm-hmm. hunger for his presence? This is worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, that your word reveals to us so clearly and just cuts through all of our cultural garbage and our traditional stuff that we've built out that, we, that we've come to elevate to the level of even your divine command how foolish and ridiculous it is. That you simply say that when we come, to come from the heart, come in spirit, but also come in truth, to come to you and show you what we really are what we're really experiencing in that moment. And and you've promised to to meet us there. 
Maybe not always to immediately give the answer that we want, but to meet us in that celebration or that despair or that desperation. For you call us to worship. Mm. You expect us to come to you. So, Lord, thank you that when we come to you in spirit and truth, we can expect you to be there, to show up, and to meet us in that place. This is our prayer. In the name of the Lord Jesus, who is our hope, who is our life, who is our truth. Amen. 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 God bless you. Have a great week. Mm -hmm.